If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you pray with me? The secret's out, Holy One. Our governor wants another mansion. He already has some, but he desires another. And he seems befuddled that there's not much support for it. We just can't. Not when 30% of the state's nursing homes are shorthanded. Not when Oklahoma has the highest rate of domestic violence against women. Not when we rank 40th for child well-being. Not when scripture has told us this story before. That time when the prophet Haggai asked, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses? while this house lies in ruins. The house in reference was the temple, God's house, which had been a pile of debris for a long time. Haggai was not suggesting a mansion for you, but for the symbol and embodiment of communal life to be given as much attention as the wealthiest were giving their pet projects. God's house is a theological phrase we translate as the community, and in Haggai's time, the people had padded their own pockets but had neglected caring for one another. So Haggai told them, consider how you have fared. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you that earn wages, earn wages to put them into a bag with holes. The rebuilding of God's house was, and is, an expression of covenant, a commitment to restore the common good to tend to God's beloved community, which should include everyone, for as we say in our time, y'all means all. We know that this is still the word of the Lord for us, Holy One. We don't even have to ask. So to adapt a few of Haggai's lines, 
Is it a time for you yourselves to build another mansion while the community lies in ruins? Consider how you have fared. You have sown much in tax breaks for corporations, but one in five of our state's children grow up in poverty. You eat and drink, but Oklahoma is the fifth hungriest state in the nation. You clothe yourselves with vouchers for private schools, but know it will never cover the cost for the student whose parent is paid minimum wage. We cannot build another mansion when those who Jesus called the least of these have so little. Be with us, Holy One, as we find the wisdom and courage to make sure that we don't lose the plot. With our work gloves on, we pray. Amen. Our reading this morning is an excerpt from our denomination's Statement of Beliefs, the whole of which you can find at ucc.org. We believe that each person is unique and valuable. It is the will of God that every person belongs to a family of faith where they have a strong sense of being valued and loved. We believe that God calls us to be servants in the service of others and to be good stewards of the earth's resources. To believe is to care. To care is to do. We believe that the UCC is called to be a prophetic church. As in the tradition of the prophets and apostles, God calls the church to speak truth to power, liberate the oppressed, care for the poor, and comfort the afflicted. We are a people of possibility. In the UCC, members, congregations, and structures have the breathing room to explore and to hear. For after all, God is still speaking. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Today we begin a three-Sunday sermon series on disability and mental health and how we can begin to move into a fuller version of humanity and justice as a beloved community, seeking to embody the teachings of Jesus in the only world we know. I've structured this series to mirror how we ideally move through the process of theological growth and development. Deconstruction, reconstruction, and the next faithful step. And I say ideally because so often those in the progressive church, obviously present company excluded, we, we tend to stay in the first stage, deconstruction, rarely moving to reconstruction so that we can then take the next faithful step. We have indeed walked away from harmful theology, left churches that tried to snuff out the light of God that is in each of us and refused to just believe something because it was handed down to us in a pretty package. 
We engage in the next step less often, that of reconstruction, because, well, it is uncomfortable and it takes concerted effort. Tearing down is much easier than building up. But this is one of the most important functions of church. It provides us an opportunity to do this work together so that it is not too much for any of us Reconstruction is vital to providing a firm foundation for when it gets a little hard to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. So today, we deconstruct some of what we have been taught about disabilities and mental health. Next Sunday, we reconstruct a more faithful theology around disability and mental health. And then on October 30th, we will talk about our next faithful steps, how to put our theology into practice. And I'm asking you to go ahead and make plans to stay after worship on the 30th for a half-hour teach-in by our Whitest Welcome team. You may have heard some of the theological understandings about disability and mental health preached explicitly from the pulpit or explicitly taught in Sunday school, or they may have come to you through the way the church embodied beliefs about disability and mental illness by excluding or whispering or ignoring. For indeed, everything a church does or doesn't do teaches something. It's also possible that you learned about disability and mental health from wider society and the church's teachings Unfortunately, we're not much different from what we experience outside of these walls. When it comes to disability and mental health, the church's teachings have not been good and sometimes downright harmful, and the consequences profound. In many instances, theology around disabilities and mental health has been disabling. That is the opposite of empowering or equipping the people of God to offer the widest welcome to each other or to model it for the wider world. Generally speaking, what the organized church with a capital C has taught and practiced for much of its history fits the definition of ableism, which disability activist Leah Smith defines as a set of beliefs or practices that devalue and discriminate against people with physical, intellectual, or psychiatric disabilities, and often rests on the assumption that people who are disabled need to be fixed in one form or another. Ableism is physical. For example, buildings without ramps, lack of braille on signs, or not using sensory-friendly lighting. It is exclusionary, planning an event at an inaccessible venue. Ableism is intrusive. For example, believing you have the right to ask how a person became disabled or not believing that a person with an invisible disability is actually disabled. Ableism is condescending, assuming that disabled people are less capable or that their ability to do typical things is inspirational. Dr. Nancy Eastland, in her book, the Disabled God, 
notes that the persistent thread within the Christian tradition has been that disability denotes an unusual relationship with God and that the person with disabilities is either divinely blessed or damned, the defiled evildoer or the spiritual superhero. As is often the case with such starkly contrasting characterizations, neither adequately represents the ordinary lives and lived realities of most people with disabilities. Some of this comes from how we interpret scripture. Dr. Walter Wilson, who teaches right up the road at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, explains in his book, Healing in the Gospel of Matthew, that all too often, disability is associated with punishment, dependency, and brokenness, and that disabled bodies are seen as deficient and flawed, that is, deviations from normative perceptions of health, productivity, self-sufficiency, and rationality. Paradoxically, in biblical stories of both testaments, people with disabilities are simultaneously overrepresented and underappreciated, a reflection of the fact that disability has been used throughout history as a crutch upon which literary narratives lean for their representational power, disruptive potentiality, and analytical insight. For its part, scripture often metaphorizes disability in order to make abstract points or offer social commentary, reducing individuals with disabilities to stereotypes, ciphers, or passive objects upon which more powerful characters act, the implication in many cases being that humanity's final redemption involves the elimination of such individuals and what they represent. In the Hebrew scriptures, the conflation of moral impurity and physical disability is a common theme. For example, in the 21st chapter of Leviticus, anyone who is blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or one who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a blemish in his eyes or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles is barred from priestly activities like bringing offerings to God or entering the most holy places in the temple. The specific physical standards of this passage may not be retained as criteria for today's religious leadership, but the implicit theology that represents disability as being linked with sin, marring the divine image in humans and preventing religious service persists in church's actions and attitudes. We find the link between sin and disability in the New Testament too. John 5 recounts the story of the man by the pool of Bethesda. After healing the man who has been unable to walk, Jesus said, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. This passage and others that include miracle healings have frequently been cited as proof that disability is a sign of moral imperfection or divine retribution for sin, and it is wrong. There are other ways scripture and our interpretation of it has led to unhelpful and downright harmful theology and praxis. 
Dr. Eastland also explains how the Bible has upheld another theme with respect to people with disabilities, namely the idea of virtuous suffering. The account of the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, that was used by Christ as a sign of divine grace, has been influential in supporting a theology of virtuous suffering. In such passages, righteous submission to divine testing is upheld as praiseworthy disposition for Christian disciples. Likewise, early interpretations of Job and the story of Lazarus purported that physical impairments were a a sign of divine election by which the righteous were purified and perfected through painful trials. They represent disability as a temporary affliction that must be endured in order to gain heavenly rewards. The biblical support of virtuous suffering has been subtle, but particularly dangerous theology for persons with disabilities. Used to promote adjustment to unjust social situations and to sanction acceptance of isolation among persons with disabilities, it has encouraged our passivity and resignation and has institutionalized depression as an appropriate response to divine testing. Viewing suffering as a means of purification and of gaining spiritual merit not only promotes the link between sin and disability, but also implies that those who never experience a cure continue to somehow harbor sin in their lives. Similar to the practice of emphasizing self-sacrifice to women, the theology of virtuous suffering has encouraged persons with disabilities to acquiesce to social barriers as a sign of obedience to God and to internalize second-class status inside and outside of the church. This is wrong. The biblical theme of charitable giving also has shaped patterns of interactions between people without disabilities and those with disabilities. In ancient society, almsgiving provided a vital means of survival for people who were deemed outcasts or who were without the means to provide for themselves. Yet as the prophet Amos proclaimed, instead of understanding those offerings as the rightful stipends of those who were socially or physically prevented from economic productivity, the people of God pushed aside the needy and refused to establish justice at the gate or at the entrance to the city. And so the system of charity that had been a requirement of justice failed. The obligation to engage in charitable giving is also present in the New Testament. From its inception, the Christian community has always acknowledged a responsibility and mission to marginalized persons, including those who are physically unable to provide for themselves. Charity, though, is not justice. These three themes, sin and disability, virtuous suffering, and segregationist charity illustrate the theological obstacles encountered by people with disabilities who seek inclusion and justice within the church. 
Mental illness has fared no better in scripture or our interpretation of it. Anytime there's a mention of demonic possession in the text, we are quick to say that it was probably undiagnosed mental illness. Lest someone think that we believe demon possession to be real, as if one loses one's progressive Christian card. But as the very practical preacher Fred Craddock once pointed out, not believing in demons has hardly eradicated evil in the world. But even if the demonic possession in all of those stories were really people in mental health crisis, the understanding that what was really going on was depression or schizophrenia or PTSD or neurodivergence, hasn't led to more helpful or compassionate approaches in how the church approaches mental health. And that's really the crux of the issue. Not believing or no longer believing particular ableist theologies or rejecting particular practices isn't enough. Just like not being racist isn't enough, the beloved community, especially the white beloved community, must be anti-racist with active and conscious effort to work against racism. So too must the church make active and conscious effort to work against ableism. So, Because we believe that each person is unique and valuable, and it is the will of God that every person belongs to a family of faith where they have a strong sense of being valued and loved, we will reconstruct the church, the beloved community, so that our theologies and our practices actually embody the widest welcome possible. We will not approach disability and mental illness as things to be avoided or tragedies to be explained, but as ordinary parts of life that call us into mutual aid and support of each other. Because we believe that God calls us to be servants in the service of others and to be good stewards of the earth's resources, and that to believe is to care and to care is to do, We will work on culture change inside the church first so that we can change the culture outside of these walls in the only world we know. Because we believe that the UCC is called to be a prophetic church and as in the tradition of prophets and apostles, God calls us the church to speak truth to power, liberate the oppressed, care for the poor, and comfort the afflicted, we will not be satisfied with charity only, but advocate for a just world for all. We believe that we are a people of possibility and in the UCC members and congregations and structures have the breathing room to explore and to hear for after all God is still speaking so we know she has something to say to us. Church, 
Are we ready? Yes. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.